0: Next Chapter Podcasts. It's been seven hours and 15 days since you took your love away. Oh,
1: you motherfuckers knew I was going to start with this. I couldn't start with another song You have to start with this one Nothing compares to you Every single person that is listening to the podcast right now As that organ started Took you right back to 1990 To maybe, if you're my age, being on the school bus Getting into a fight with Paul Blivin Because he thinks Millie Vanilli is better than Sinead O'Connor And I'm like, you are spoogle. You are Spoogle. Like I said, it is nothing compares to you. It's by Sinead O'Connor, offered 1990 sophomore record. I do not want what I haven't got. That's a great title, man. It's also number 408 out of 500 on the 500 with me, the man, the myth, the king of fleece, the king Kadugal, the Wangzuki himself, Josh Adam Myers. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing? You guys good? I don't know why I'm waiting for you to answer There's no way you can answer Unless you tweet at me Tweet at me At Josh Adam Myers Thank you for joining me on the only podcast Where we're going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list Of the 500 greatest albums This is why I love doing the podcast Because you see an album that's coming up on the list And you're like, fuck man I don't know how Like, I just want to get to the one after it Because I don't know how I'm going to get through this one And this one smacked me across the face So hard, man I got sad when we stopped the recording of the podcast When this one was done Because I knew I had to put this album to bed And move on to The Clash Which I'm like totally stoked about Like, (laughs) dude I mean, Sandinista is the shit But I really, really enjoyed this one A lot I really enjoyed it a lot um, and let's find out about it. Why not? It was released on March 20th, 1990 on Ensign and Chrysalis Records and produced by Nellie Hooper, Chris Burkett, Sean Divitt, and Sinead O'Connor. And like I said at the beginning, it is her second record. Born Sinead Marie Bernadette O'Connor. Man, that is, that is one wangzuki of a name. On December 8th, 1966, in Geary Dublin, Ireland, she was the third of five children. Now, after her parents' divorce in 79, and due to her mother's extreme emotional and physical abuse, she went to live with her dad. But then in her teens, she got into trouble with truancy and shoplifting, you know, what kids do. And was sent to 18 months in a Catholic juvenile detention center. What if I would have read off? It was like she was she was truant. She was shoplifting, started an illegal underground counterfeit money laundering program with the Japanese Yakuza. And then she got sent to 18 months at a Catholic juvenile detention center. Would everybody listening, all the police army be like, holy shit, man. I think I fucks with Sinead O'Connor now. But while she was at Juvenile Detention Center, her musical development thrived and her talents were noticeable. Then she got out. She started a band called Tan Tan Makut while she was still in school, but dropped out to pursue her career. in guess what? Singing. Around that time, her abusive mother was killed in an automobile accident, which complicated Sinead's past issues. She quit her band and was noticed as a solo artist and signed to a solo record deal with Ensign Records at 17 years old. But here's the deal. Sinead O'Connor wasn't a typical 17 year old. She rebelled against the record execs who wanted her to grow her hair out long and wear many skirts to sexualize her. But this little lady has attitude. She's outspoken, she's controversial, she got political views about Ireland, Sinead is the shit. And Sinead said, no, I am not gonna wear mini skirts, I am not growing my hair out, I am going right to the barbershop, I'm shaving my doodad, my gulliver, my head, and this is the way I'm gonna rock. She got the ex-head of U2's record label as her manager, she co-wrote a song with The Edge, for a soundtrack and sang on World Party's debut album before starting her own debut. Then she got pregnant with her first child during the recording of said album. Her first record, 1987's The Lion and the Cobra, was a hit, earned rave reviews, and college radio airplay won a bunch of award nominations. What did she do? She took all that acclaim and energy and put that back into this confessional, emotionally bare second record. And yes, a lot of the songs were centered around the relationship between her and her late mother. But then also, she's talking about her past relationships. And she's expressing very, very eh, political views. I don't know how to even say it. She's expressing, that's all I know. And this album went on to sell 7 million records, and in my opinion, changing the tone. Of the, the the rest of the alternative music, like it, it created this dark underbelly that clashed with all the other contemporaries around that time. And I I found this quote by Sinead, and I feel like it's the best. Like it's dope. I was a square peg in a round hole. I saw myself as a protest singer. Really, I was representing child abuse survivors. That's how I saw myself. So I didn't fit in to the pop star thing. You think? This is an incredible record. And what's so cool about doing this podcast is we have our bookers, Melissa and Emily, and they recommend people. And I'm like, yeah, dude, cause we're trying to find the perfect guest for each record. I really wanted to feel like it's somebody that, that like, not just like, I want you guys, cause you know, I don't know shit about it. And I hear every, what everybody's saying online. They're like, this dude, you can only know Stone Temple Pilots. And that's true. I'm becoming a fan, and it's dope when I get to sit down with somebody that is an actual fan of the record, and then also someone I don't know very well, but I've heard of, and today we have a guest that I can't rave enough about, from Tegan and Sarah, Sarah Quinn. Of course you guys have heard of Tegan and Sarah, it's her and her sister, her identical twin sister, and they've released eight studio records their ninth one hey we're just like you the remixes just came out last friday on sire records this was so much fun because i i had heard of tegan and sarah i knew a couple of their songs i'm not saying i was like a huge fan you're like yeah dude like it's good music but like i was nervous about this interview because like i'm i'm who i am and sarah's who she is and i'm so abrasive and i can be funny and stuff and like You know, I get like, I get already like, I can already think like, I'm like, all right, Rita Wilson's going to hate me just because of like the way that I am. But here's the thing, man. Right from the beginning, like Sarah was just so funny and so down. Like, I'm just so happy that this is the way that we're going to honor this record because it 100% deserves it. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms, anywhere you get your pods. But if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I'm telling you guys, I need you to do this. Leave a review. Leave a five-star rating and leave a review for us. I don't care what you say. You can just write, fuck the 500. But just do it because it helps us. Also, take a screenshot of the way you're listening to the 500 today, and I want you guys to... Post that on your Instagram stories. Tag me, at Josh Adam Myers, and hashtag the 500 Podcast. And maybe tag Sarah Quinn, because it's dope. Follow me, at Josh Adam Myers, on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And follow the Facebook group, the 500 Podcast with Jam, and the 500 Podcast fan page, both on Facebook. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Welp, guys, nothing left to say, but... Here we go with 408. I do not want what I haven't got by Sinead O'Connor. Enjoy. What's up, Fleece Army? Before we get to our guests, I want to introduce you to our new sponsor, Sunset Lake CBD. Now, as you know, I love marijuana, but I can't do it before I do stand-up or before I record the pod, so I use CBD because it mellows me out, and I am excited to start working with Sunset Lake CBD. Dude, they have the goods. Sunset Lake CBD is located in Alburgh, Vermont, right outside of Burlington, and they are family-owned and have been doing this shit since 2018. All of their hemp is 100% pesticide-free, and they only use organic fertilizers. And if you like to smoke cannabis but don't want to get stoned, they have actual CBD hemp flower. They sent me some. It's dope. They have pre-rolls. If you don't have the time to, to do a bong it, or you're out in public... They have pre-rolls. The pre-rolls are dope. And if you're not a smoker, they have gummies, topical salves, which they've given me because I hurt my neck. And not going to lie, it actually helped. And they have a CBD oil with 750 milligrams of CBD that you can just put inside your mouth. Or you can give it to your dog because I gave it to my dog and it's helped her paw. I believe in this company or I wouldn't promote them. Check them out at sunsetlakecbd.com. Use the promo code JAM500 for 15% off your next purchase. Thank you, Sunset Lake CBD. Fleece Army, you know what to do. Go to sunsetlakecbd.com.
0: It's been been Sarah Sarah Quinn and
1: Sarah
0: Quinn.
1: Sarah Quinn,
0: Sarah Quinn. Hit me with uh, Uh. that.
1: We just woke up. I'm not going (laughs) to. All right. So so, uh, one, thank you for coming on. Two, uh, like I'm in love with this record. And, uh, you know, like most people, most people, know about Sinead O'Connor through nothing compares to you and for most it ends right there. So to find someone that's a huge fan of Sinead and this record, I I I just I find fascinating. Uh because now I am. So I want you to tell me like like give me like the brief history of your relationship uh with Sinead and with this record.
2: Sure, yeah. So uh, as we discussed, sort of before we hit record, we're we're similar ages. I gr- I was born in 1980, and I grew up in a sort of unique situation in that my parents were kind of rockers. They were young when they had us. They were I, th- I think my mom was 21, turning 22 when she had my sister and I. And uh, my parents were just like out of high school, long haired kind of hippies, kind of making that transition into like 80s rock music and. Um, after my parents got divorced, my mom sort of took a really sort of different path with the music that she was interested in. And actually it was my dad who, um, sort of was, had a little bit more eclectic taste. He listened to a lot of like Lyle Lovett and the Neville brothers. And actually my first, my first memory of Sinead O'Connor was actually with my dad. And it was the, and it was a song called Troy, um, I know people think it's nothing compares to you, but like the truth. Yeah,
1: I know. I feel like the idiot for assuming. (laughs) See what happens when you assume. (laughs) No,
2: I mean, that's like, (laughs) no, I think, I think that is true. And I I think that the vast majority of people connect, not just the song, but the sort of like cultural phenomenon that wished Dana O'Connor at that time. And then also sort of the look and the head and the video. And there was just like this, like, you know, uh, there, it was just like a, a, a huge impactful moment. But for me, I remember the first time hearing her voice and specifically, a song called Troy. Um and and uh and and feeling like haunted by that and feeling sort of like freaked out. Like what does this song mean? And I was both my sister and I were sort of these like precocious young kids who always liked whatever our parents liked. And I'm sure there was lots of um raised eyebrows when we would when we would like come to school and be like, have you all heard Berg Spanish train, Patricia the Stripper is a deep <laughs> pop, but I think you should check it out. Like, you know, like it was I think a lot of people were just listening to like Janet Jackson and Nuke It's on the Block. Yeah,
1: know? we're listening to the Backyardigans right now. I don't know about you, but uh, <laughs> the, the Wiggles or whatever they're called—that's what we're into.
2: <laughs> exactly. So I think we were we were really influenced by our parents. But yes, nothing compares to you. And I mean that that in that entire album really was it was. I just, I think if you were someone who was listening to music at that time, even if you were a parent raising children, it was on the radio, it was on whatever in Canada, we had much music, not MTV, but you were seeing the videos and you were, you were caught up in the sort of like the excitement and also controversy of Sinead O'Connor. I feel like I don't remember a time where people were not praising her, but also critiquing her, which is sort of indicative of that era of like sort of, um, you know, we, we all, we've all, well, indicative of even this era where we we sort of love a bad boy but we don't really like a woman who pushes pushes boundaries especially when they're you know in the in the realm of like religious or you know um uh, like equity between men and women whatever it is. So I also remember thinking like she was this kind of um it wasn't just like oh my god this voice or oh my god this song it was actually like there was something sort of provocative about her that I remember even as a kid being like who
1: is this? What is this? Yeah, I mean, even the music video for "Nothing Compares to You" is is like ballsy. I don't even oh, know. Sure. Yeah, just just the it's like it's like it's like when dangelo it's D'Angelo before D'Angelo did that, where yeah. his where his is this like sexy love song, and hers is this song about like longing and needing and being crushed, and then the shaved head and and the single teardrop just just that was so many people's introduction that was mine but yeah. but also you you said something that i that i found like really interesting is is that is that like she was so big and and we're the same age basically uh and i still can remember my 10 and 11 year old you know guy friends loving this song that's how big nothing compares to you was And and it just like I remember being in the back of the bus and like singing it and then we all have like the single of it. And and then it was just like you said, it it feels like she was like just it was controversial, uh, Mm -hmm. like things that she did throughout the rest of her career that I feel like if it was a like you said, if it was a guy. I don't know if, if that happens. I, you know, I feel like, I feel like they just go, ah, it's, well, it's, it's him being him and him just standing as is stating his case. But with her, it was almost like people were like, Oh no, you know, you can't do that. You can't say yeah. that you can't feel like that. How, yeah. how did, how did seeing that at such a young age, like influence you musically and just personally,
2: you know, it's interesting, you know, as you're talking about the video too with the shaved head, you know, as I was a young queer person at that time like i didn't i would never have i would never have had the the language or the perhaps even the the i hadn't quite like lined up all the pieces but internally i knew i was really different and um i knew i again i have this language now i would not have been able to say this then but i was dealing with the fact that i recognized that my, my gender expression as a young girl was not like my best friend across the street who loved dresses and who was into like, you know, was in dance classes and liked pink and was pretty, you know, femme traditional kind of kid. And, you know, I wanted my hair really short, like my dad, and I only wanted one earring. And I was really, I liked to, I was really much more drawn to androgynous or even sort of like traditionally boy clothes or whatever. And, you know, back then, you know, we would have called that just tomboy and you sort of written wrote it off as like, oh, they're just, you know, they like their dad. They're, they're more like their dad or whatever. But I think that that was probably some of the early adoption I already had, um, you know, to this idea that I was going to be different, that I, w- I felt different, that I identified differently than, than, than other people. And, um, and I don't, I don't think I necessarily understood the sexuality part of it because I was like still a kid, but, um, but I remember any, any woman I saw um, who was was not presenting themselves in this really feminine way, even if they were like a super badass, like somebody like Madonna or Kate Bush or you know um, like Janet Jackson or whatever. Like I could recognize the power and the sort of like uh, the the sort of like um, amazingness of those women, but I didn't like identify as them, you know. Whereas um, I remember seeing Sinead O'Connor or like Annie Lennox or like any anyone that was like sort of like like, like, rebuffing or, like, pushing against those kind of, like, gender expression norms, I would, I would sort of feel like, it's bad, you know, like, oh, I I like, I like that Sinead O'Connor has a shaved head, like, what does that mean? And um, so, yeah, I think, I think that, that whereas, like, for so many people, it was kind of like, wow she's weird she has a shaved head she's also like stunning I mean she's like
1: you know like
2: if she if I mean she's like a stunning person to look at in that video like there's just something shaved head or not she's so beautiful and and emotive and like the camera loves her and it's it's so hard to look away but I think for me I was reading that as a young kid as like uh, I'm like looking around like is everybody else like thrilled by this? Like, you (laughs) know, I really, uh, and again, it wasn't attraction, but it was, it was an identity identifying with the way that she was um, expressing herself in terms of like her being like provocative or bad. I mean, the biggest one, of course, or the biggest moment I remember is the tearing up of the picture of the Pope. And I remember that being a conversation in, in and around my, my family and my parents were, Um, (laughs) self-proclaimed recovering Catholics. They had all grown up in the Catholic church and my mom had gone to like a, you know, like a rough and tumble uh, uh, Catholic boarding school in in prelate Saskatchewan, which is like, you know, they couldn't get any rougher than that. You know, it was like being sent to like a work camp, you know, it was so... Um, the nuns would like hit hit everybody. You're and, blowing
1: like, my my mind right now because like my my <laughs> Canadian like niceties and all of that are being like just pushed away. Like, is there this underground like listen just uh, co- fight club a, a pr- in Alberta?
2: <laughs> oppressive Catholicism does not stop at the border. Sure, okay, I bet, like yeah. you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, so my mom and my dad both grew up uh, going to Catholic church and going to Catholic school and as adults uh we're sort of like uh no thanks you know we're not we're not doing that whole thing no one no one claimed them claimed themselves as an atheist but in my family there was no religion and I remember there was a complicated reaction to Sinead O'Connor ripping up a picture of the pope and I think it had more to do with maybe that is where the Canadian comes in there was something about like we don't disagree with what she's doing. Actually, she's totally on, you know, she's nailing this, but you know, at least at that time in, in Canada, um, it was, it was just not polite to be so p- political. Sure. It was not, you were, it was, it was such a, it was such a divisive kind of moment where it was like we could, I remember there was a sort of like good for her, but also a little bit of like, take it, take it easy. You know, like, so yeah.
1: Only 4% of universities in the U S are R1 research institutions and uh, really preconceived uh, notions of how I was going to enjoy this. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll like nothing compares to you, and then that'll be it. And this isn't uh, an album that you just push aside as 90s pop, man. I, I think that this is no. one of the most somber, confessional, and emotionally bare records uh, I might have listened to so far on this list. Uh, and I think this record is as political as anything that rage against the machine has done or or John Lennon. It is, it is, this is a record that not only deserves to be on the list, but, um, and going off of what you're saying. And before we get into the tracks, I wanted to ask you this. If Sinead doesn't push the political boundaries, the abuse boundaries and, and her message, uh, how big does Sinead O'Connor get, do you think?
2: You know, I think I mean I always sort of have this kind of question in my mind about a lot of our sort of cultural um uh, powerhouse women. Like when you look back through especially um the last like let's call it 40 years, you know, you see a lot of women who are um, you know, to use a term that we're all very comfortable with these days. Like, I think a lot of women were gaslighted. I think that they were they were mistreated, they were mishandled, they were taken advantage of, they were abused, they were gaslighted, all of these things. And it's like, if you don't have a mental breakdown and disappear, if you're, I don't know, a Fiona Apple or Lauren Hill or Sinead O'Connor or whoever, like, I mean, the tremendous pressure, uh, culturally, socially, um, and, and industry-wide, like, that these women were under, um, and to be scrutinized and 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 to be um, to be critiqued in the way that they were to, to say nothing of the misogyny that was just so acceptable. I mean, I think that I have no idea if Sinead O'Connor would have been more popular or would have had would have sustained that popularity if she had been less political. But what's clear to me is that you know for so many women, um, it was untenable. Fame and success and being in the spotlight was untenable. How could you how could you not collapse? How could you not? Um, uh, you know sort of have to disappear or implode or explode and I think um, Sinead O'Connor is just like to me such like a prime example of someone who's so heroic and so brave in in the in the same in the same category as her contemporaries people like you mentioned like Bob Dylan or you know Rage Against the Machine and but these men were sort of like they were heroic and they were lifted up and they were they were they were, they were Iconoclast talking about culture and society and they were told you're a hero whereas I think with women that we sort of as a we still do this culturally and socially where it's like someone speaks out and some of us do agree maybe a lot of us agree but we're also scared to be to be to be um, supporting someone like that because people come for those people and it's really hard to stand shoulder to shoulder with them as allies and I think Shane O'Connor is one of those people who I think is really like I think that she's like um, she's a casualty of the, of of that
1: yeah I would put you know what you mentioned God, you said that so right. Everybody that you mentioned, Lauren Hill, Fiona Apple, I mean, they have they are outspoken. They they've spoken their their heart, their truth, and the public just goes, You're crazy. Get out of here. And and It's it, a threat. It's a They're th- a yeah. threat.
2: Everything everything that those women and I mean there's there's countless, I'm forgetting like I mean there's just like almost all of them. Like they're countless, countless women, and they are pushing back. And again, they're also coming from a very like heteronormative kind of place, like these are women who were writing about men and children and the church and the state and my body and my rights and all of these things. And that is a, that's a that's an extreme threat to the way that our society and our capitalism works. And so when you go back and you look at what these women were saying, even though they were personal songs and personal messages, they were political messages and you couldn't delineate between those those two things.
1: Yeah, all right, well, I feel like we should just, this is a perfect place to dive right into the record because this is how Sinead O'Connor opens her second record. She opens it with uh, the Serenity Prayer, which if you, if people don't know uh, what the Serenity Prayer is, it's by American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr.
0: God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference
1: and it's been popularized in I think every 12 step program it's about acceptance and uh, she uh, this I mean here let's just play it Uh, Peter open up uh, 337 play that I should
0: have for you. But I do not have any.
1: This is a bold choice, not just to open up the song with the Serenity Prayer or open up the album with the Serenity Prayer, but she opens it up with an almost, it's, I think it's like seven minutes And it's just the most confessional and like stark vocals. And there's no drums, no anything, just orchestral strings behind her. And uh, whoever she's talking about, I mean, this is like, this is just cutting right through it. Uh, So I was wondering, like, who do you think she's talking about?
2: I mean, one thing I think is really interesting, and I mean, I haven't. Thought. This is this is all really off the cuff. I haven't really like thought a ton cuff about it it. or articulated all this. cuff
1: I want only cuff.
2: One of the things that I find really interesting is that um, you know, there's it's obvious to me. I mean, I get like really stretching here, but like, or maybe I'm not, but this is a person who is obviously grown up, um, a believer, spiritual, religious, whatever you want to say. Like, this is like somebody who is like, um, it she, she, Everything about her, especially on this album, it's like the betrayal could be like, it could be a lover, it could be a man, it could be, you know, whatever. But there's also this kind of like, I think, larger story, larger betrayal. Of, of religion, of like, of, of, of this, of this um, belief system sure. and this kind of like this world that I think that she was raised in. And then, um, and she is lashing out at that, which I think is, you know, again, like, you know, it could be, it can be distilled down to like uh, the very personal real life relationship or it could be something much bigger and, and spiritual.
1: Yeah. Cause it's about resistance, whether it's to the church and the message mm-hmm. that they're, they're putting across, or it could be her ex-husband sure. it could be about her mother. Uh, it, you know, it could be about her sexuality. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. It's like, yeah. because like, cause in 2000 Sinead came out as a lesbian, mm-hmm. uh, but in 2005, then she said she was only a quarter gay. Yeah. And by 2014, she said she didn't believe in labels and was attracted to whomever. So I wanted to ask you this, mm-hmm. being that uh, you and your sister are icons, was there a moment or feeling that influenced uh, you to come out publicly?
2: Not, not really. Like, you know, I think our situation was so unique in that um, our career had already career. I use that. That's like generous. Uh, We had already started performing and thinking of ourselves in terms of like a band in high school. And I wasn't out yet. And, um, and we started to be, you know, to, to play shows and to do music, press and radio and that type of thing. And right away I, I think because there was this parallel between like coming out as a musician and coming out as my like identity, they were happening kind of at the same time. And so when I got out of high school, um, I had like a pretty uncomfortable conversation with my mom. Like, I mean, within months of me graduating where she was like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Are you going to get a job? Are you gay? <laughs> like, you know, it like, was <laughs> like, it was kind of like, we got everything out. You know, you going
1: to pay me back for, for con- what are you going to do? You know, you owe us money. Yeah, you, gonna, there was, there, we
2: were kind of like establishing, <laughs> establishing who and what and you know, what I was and what I was going to do. And that was all happening really at the same time as, as Tegan and I sort of were like finding our footing in, in in the music industry as a band. And so I don't remember really having much of a conversation about like coming out publicly. I was coming out. So it was like, because those things were happening simultaneously, I don't remember. I never felt like I wasn't out in the music industry. I just was like, suddenly I was out in my life. And I was also having all these conversations with music journalists and, Radio DJs and music industry people, and there was just this kind of like. I mean, we looked really gay after high school.
1: I know. I was gonna say, I, like I was nobody like, was, I was like, like, "No,
2: are you serious?" You know. Wait, are you telling like, me with the Bieber? Yeah, haircuts, like people were two Bieber. People haircuts. were not. Nobody knew Bieber <laughs> then, but they did. They were like, you are women with short hair, and you don't wear makeup, and you look kind of gay. And like, are you gay? And and I think because that was. Just how it happened—it saved us from that turmoil of like, should I or shouldn't I? Or people think I'm straight. Should I tell them I'm gay? We just didn't have any of that.
1: Yeah, I don't. I, you're right. I, I looked at a lot of those old pictures, and if any, I think they'd be more shocked if you would have come out as straight. Do you know what I mean? No, that, <laughs> you know what, what's
2: amazing to me—it still happens to this day. Like some people just don't like I mean I felt like I was like radiating gay like I just felt like I got out of high school and I was like liberated like I cut my hair off I had a girlfriend I dressed kind of gay in 90s gay and I have never had more interest I remember had a a part-time job and it's like every guy I worked with was constantly trying to go out to the bar with me and I would be like I'm gay (laughs) like do I have to wear a fucking t-shirt like what the hell like you know to me I looked so gay and it was like but it was, I've i have sort of reconciled this by, I was so, I was glowing. I mean, I was so liberated and I was so excited. And I just was like me, you know, I was charismatic and I was charming. And I don't think the guys were like, she seems gay. I think they just were like, she seems young and fun and hot and I'm a dude. So I guess I just will look past all the other stuff. I don't know. It was weird.
1: All right. I gotta ask because you said it. What is what is '90s gay uh, lesbian wardrobe? Because you you said because I'm dressing '90s gay. <laughs> I was like-,
2: like for me, when I look back, there were certain trends. Like I really wanted a short haircut, which I actually now look back like there's a couple versions of the haircut I had that I'm like it's it's sick, like it looks awesome. But um, but I think I wanted to. I think I was really kind of like like bringing into focus that idea that i wanted to be more um androgynous so that meant like having that kind of more like male barber shop kind of haircut i remember like i wanted a barb i didn't want like a feminized like elfin little like sideburns that girls would do in the 90s you know like kind of raver style
1: yeah like the 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 laurie petty
2: yeah or like wispy (laughs) like they would get their hair cut short but it would like be like these like elfin like they were i don't know what it was and it was like or like baby bangs like i was like no i'm like
1: i miss the 90s (laughs) so much right (laughs) now oh my god i've loved every girl you're explaining i'm like uh is she single because I would date her.
2: No, but me too. And I could, and I could differentiate, like I grew up with a lot of like ravers and, you know, skater girls and whatever, like, you know, they all looked like, to me, like, um, like Chloe Sevigny kids or whatever.
1: Raver, dude, nine, late nineties, raver girls, in my opinion are the hottest girls in the world. And you know, what's funny is that, uh, because, and thank God there was no uh, camera phones around. Um, because I would have had, like, if there were any pictures of me with the Raver girls, like, uh, it would be so embarrassing because they were dressed, and you remember, it was, like you said, the short haircut. Yep. They, they had, like, you know, like uh, like a half shirt on. But, like, a belly b- top. With wings, mm-hmm. yeah. And then the Jinko pants, and there's glitter and Love stickers JNCO. on them. But the problem is, I was dressed exactly like them. So we would... <laughs> yes, but same,
2: like, this is the thing, right? Like, I identify, like, I would go to raves, and I would see the DJs and the guys that were hanging out with those girls and I wanted to look like them. So like in some weird way, I tried to emulate that. Like I got the boy, these are all stupid binaries now, but like, or like stupid to talk in this way, but like, I would get the boy version of that hair. I wanted bleached hair. I wanted a short haircut, but then it was also this weird thing where I was out of high school when I came out and I sort of had this sense of like, I'm a new me. I'm not a raver anymore. I'm an adult me who's starting a music career. And so I I have a few years of lost um, fashion, you know, just where I was trying out anything. So, like, there was a lot of polar fleece. There was some sandals. Um, there was, like, a not giant – like, it's one thing to wear Jinko pants and, like like, be seriously wearing enough fabric on your body to, like, make clothes for a whole village. But it is another thing to kind <laughs> yeah. of – then slimmed down. Like I just was wearing pants that looked the wrong size. Like I wasn't wearing like giant pants that, that said to the world, like, hello, I'm a huge raver. Like it was more like I was, I looks, I look like I I actually look like the way I probably should dress now as a 40 year old. Like now I'm like, now I would be able to dress like that and it looked fine. But yeah, I didn't, um, I did not feel like we uh, masked or hid our identity well. And that was a blessing because it just meant that we, we kind of like exploded onto the music scene as gay people and that was hard and it was really challenging and there was decades there's been two decades of like ups and downs around what it means to sort of be an out queer person in the music industry but I am glad that we didn't have to struggle or not to like poke fun at somebody like Sinead O'Connor I think sexuality is complicated like a lot of people do come out and then they're like whoa I'm gonna dial that back or they they feel resentful because now it's like their whole identity is about this one statement or what one relationship. And like, I get all of that as a hassle.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely. All right, moving on to the second song. And this is where the album really starts. You know, it shows not just, she opens with this very, like, uh, still, somber song. And then she drops, I am stretched on your grave, which, in my opinion, uh, almost sounds like a Tony, Tony, Tony song. Uh, Peter, play the intro. Dude, she's got some new Jack swing in her. I mean, this is. It's just. I was not expecting that. I was not expecting her uh, to use a James Brown Funky Drummer sample. Uh, and Sinead is singing the Engl- English translation of an anonymous 17th century Irish poem that had been set to a hymnal melody by Irish musician Philip King in 1979. Um. The the thing about this song is that she does this inflection a few times in it that just gives me chills. Peter, uh, play two fifty eight. Dude, I mean, that is that might be my favorite moment on the entire record. Just that little shift in her in her note. Oh my god.
2: Yeah, I mean, it feels feels like what's so interesting to me too. And again, not to sort of like belabor this, but like why not? Because we've had to live through hundreds of years of it. But like, women just are so underestimated in in what their abilities are, and you know, their authorship. And this whole album, I mean, "Save for Nothing" compares to you, written by Prince. Everything on that album, you know, is is I mean, like you look at albums now and it's like paragraphs, it's like song written by like entire city of Cincinnati, you know, like, it's just like, and there's nothing wrong with that. It takes a lot of people to make magic. But when you look at this album, like these ideas, these, you know, whether it's the production ideas or what she was reading or what she's influenced by, I mean, like, these are really sophisticated compositions. They're not, they're not pop songs. And they're also... They're also reaching back into all these different genres. There is a little bit of R&B hip hop. There is a little bit of like world music, spiritual stuff. There is sort of like religious chanting type thing. Like she really had like a lot of, she was looking from, she was picking from a lot of different areas and it just sort of shows her creative brilliance at that age.
1: You know, it, and she, this, even though she didn't write this, but she connects this uh, through the emotion, the way she's singing, uh, and and you feel like she is still talking about her relationship with her mother. Yeah, like this, it's it's it might not have been her words, but man, did she put the yeah. just the uh, the stank on it, and it just like it's it's a Sinead O'Connor song, mm-hmm. and, it, and it just completely flows, and that goes into. Three Babies and this was the fourth and final single and it kind of starts off as this soft uh, lifting waltz that grows in passion and what I love about this record is there's so many powerful moments and uh, this one at 217 uh, is one of them Peter play it No
0: Longer
1: You don't have to understand the lyrics, uh, because her voice motivates the emotions that you're experiencing. And regardless, I mean, it's it's so powerful, Mm -hmm. uh, and yet so simple. And it's just, it's just like at this point on my first listen to this record, I am just like, I'm like, holy shit, this is this is a record I should not have poo pooed whatsoever
2: it's it's to to me there's something like just fresh listening right now it's like it feels extremely operatic too like there's something about what's happening you know musically and then what's happening with the sort of top line of her voice that it is it's well it's making me think a little bit of Adele as well like there's this kind of like try as you might you cannot resist what she does when those when those sort of like moments happen it 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 gives you a full body rush. And that's like, that's just, that's just like musical math. Like she's doing something and creating these moments that are electric. And um, it also is just like, again, listening to her now, like when you think about the era in which this music was released, not that unlike actually the era that music is in right now, but women are doing this, um, you know, they're, they're singing in a sexy way. They're singing in a way that is sort of like um, is ornate or, uh, you know... If sexualized. They're, yeah. yeah, they're sexualized. Even, even when they're empowered, like someone like Madonna. But, like, this is like full-on fucking rage. Like, I mean, she is singing with rage and anger and passion and again I think when men sing this way people are sort of, they respond to it the same way they do when they see like a man riding a horse in the five million military war movie like they're just like yes another man doing something angry whereas like I think when women do this it it also put people off. what is she so upset about why I don't it doesn't sound good or whatever it is and listening to this now, I'm just like, how can you deny this is not like spectacular, like spectacular.
1: Oh, completely. Uh, and, and that's so that's so true what you just said. Hey, this is Mike Wiebe and I'm the singer in a band called the Riverboat Gamblers.
0: And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called the Draculas. And we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three.
1: What's up everyone, this is Jay Reason and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo aka Lord Ezak interview artist from the hardcore punk, metal, hip hop scenes and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, LA street photographer Estevan Oriel, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law and pro wrestler Vampiro to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, and lots of laughs,
0: tune in and join the fun.
1: So uh, so this is an honest expression of Sinead's feelings about her miscarriages, but it's also been interpreted by some people as being about the complicated emotions after having abortions. So this is 1990. Mm-hmm. and And this is a record that, because of Nothing Compares to You, is, I mean, it's been bought, I think, I think 10 million uh like copies of this were sold in the first year and it's just like to be able to push that message I mean how how much emotion to get that out so I wanted to ask you like being that you're a songwriter what was the hardest emotional song for you to put out with Tegan? you know
2: I don't I don't know like I mean I don't have any songs written about my abortions um I haven't had any Not not to make light of it, but like I haven't, I don't have music about what are sort of culturally or socially controversial things. Like I, I, I'm sort of like I stand in awe at someone like Sinead O'Connor. Even then, then and now, like to to discuss these things, I think we travel in a world that's much more acceptable um, socially and culturally. Like breakups, being dumped, you know, even like you know the sort of more zoomed out existential uh, life and death kind of stuff. And, um, and I don't know if that's just that we've, you know, we haven't, we haven't zeroed in on things that are, that are more provocative. I mean, the idea that we are queer has always been sort of controversial. And, and especially when I think back to like when we first started putting out music, you know, it was, um, it was sort of like one of those situations where by, by identifying as queer, we also, it was, it was socially acceptable at the time to have people write and say things to us that were so, um, Uh, so disgusting and so awful and you know uh, but it wasn't necessarily our relationship you know that was that was so um provocative or unbelievable it was just the idea that we were talking about other women um that was hard but when I think about what Sinead O'Connor was doing then but also imagine a record coming out now with these songs on it imagine Ariana Grande putting out her third single and it was about all you know her um be feeling upset about her abortion you know like I mean it's just like you know, I think still to this day, the idea that whatever Sinead was singing about, it's, 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 it's so bare. It's so raw. It's so intense.
1: Yeah. I'm Wow. I, I was trying to think, as you said that, like, who is like, who do you think is putting out songs right now that that are that are female that are that are this emotionally open and raw?
2: I mean, my first thought is like, is Beyonce, you know, I think probably like, I mean, there's tons of artists and musicians. I mean, there's like zillions and zillions and zillions of us. Like we're all making, you know, crazy music and all kinds of music and talking about personal things, but at like the level you're talking about to sell 10 million records in 1990, like the equivalent of someone who is just like gigantic, epic, everyone knows her. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think Beyonce singing about her relationship and her identity and her blackness and her Um, you know her her sexuality and her forgiving her husband for cheating I mean these are these are things that are like man that is like those are really tough especially when you are like you are sort of a cultural icon to like put that stuff out into art and have people listen to it critique it think about it Um, yeah I think I think somebody like Beyonce to me straight is like up there
1: do you think, do you think that a lot of female artists are, are afraid of the pushback that they're going to get? Like, cause you mentioned Ariana Grande and you people like Katy Perry, and I'm just trying to think of who are the huge, you know, on that Beyonce level, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, where they're selling 10 to 20 million records. Like, it, do you think it's, it's the, it's, it's fear of, of like losing audience or sure. fear of
2: look at Taylor. I mean, I don't know if you watched that Taylor Swift documentary that came out last year, but Or I
1: didn't know this year, but I I want to now.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. You know, there's this like really interesting moment where she's talking, she's like, you know, you see behind the scenes of her with her, I think it's her mom and maybe her publicist, but she's talking about just wanting to tweet, just like write a a political statement and like the labor and the, like uh, the hand wringing that goes into her finally coming out with a public statement. I, I, you know, I think if I just heard about it I'd sort of roll my eyes and then but like watching it, like seeing it actually go down, I had this moment where I was like, man, like Taylor Swift is we we say like, oh she's just a person, she should just say something, but she she represents this whole ecosystem of people and ideas and community and church and industry and and family and cultural values and all of these things and I think, um, I get, I sometimes forget that, like, I live pretty free. I, I don't, I don't adhere to these things. I'm not worried about pissing off the church or my country radio listeners or, you know, a politician. Like I, I have, I have, I've always forged a path sort of outside of the mainstream, but when you think of somebody like Katy Perry or Ariana Grande or, um, Taylor Swift, I think that they do have, they, they sort of built their worlds in, in, inside of those, um, you know inside of those structures and so to like try to dismantle those can be really overwhelming. I was also going to say there's something about this album I would never have connected these two artists together but there's actually something right now that's making me think a lot of um Hayley Williams from Paramore and her solo record that just came out um Under Petals for Armor. Um you know this to me is like a really a really profound album where she is talking about Um, really intense stuff. I mean, her first, the first single is, I think that like the first lines have the word rage in them. (laughs) Like, And she's, she is talking about, um, you know, her personal relationship and marriage that dissolved. And she's talking about in the press now, she's talking about what it was like to be a young person coming up in the music industry and, and things that she went through. And, um, it's reminding me a little bit of Sinead O'Connor in that, like, those are, those are provocative things to talk about when you've never spoken about them before. And, um, and yeah, them, them making this connection right now though, between those two. I mean, I don't think Haley um, and Paramore are necessarily confined to the same pop bubble that like Katy Perry and, and, you know, I don't know, all the, the, you know, these big stars are, I think they sort of operate in their own lane, but there's still something quite provocative and brave about that. I think.
1: Well, you know, To go off of that, because that then brings us to the Emperor's New Clothes. I mean, this is a song about her proclaiming her independence uh, from the hypocritical society and her Catholic upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, so, so you're saying something that's and just like her ripping the picture of the Pope, uh, it, it it reminds me of. Like the pushback that Sinead got from that reminds me of Natalie Maines oh, from the sure. Dixie Chicks making a political statement about George Bush. And what do people do? They attack her more than than if if my friend Tom Murillo would say something political where they would just go, yeah, you know, are, he's he's crazy. But it's it felt like it's like it's these vicious attacks. Yeah that that these artists especially women get for speaking their mind and 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 speaking their truth and i I, it's just it blows my mind it's so hypocritical
2: yeah um yeah and it's important i think to like i mean i think as we're sort of like sitting in this really interesting cultural moment and really important you know um cultural moment whether we're like looking at like the black lives matter movement or we're looking at the inequities that are faced right now by people during this COVID-19 and the the inequities of healthcare in the United States and just the sort of like top toxicity of like male culture and how that's being sort of like unwound in all these different industries. Like it's important to like, I think sometimes we sort of like write some of this stuff off. Like when we're like, Oh, Sinead O'Connor, like she really pushed people's buttons because she ripped up a picture of the Pope. Okay. But what, what do the majority of people really understand about what she was saying? She was saying that the, she was talking about the Catholic Church and sexual abuse of children yeah. within this mm-hmm. within the church, and you know she was well ahead of her time because now you know to talk about those things publicly, we all sort of go like, yeah, that was this we really understand this now, and this is a real nightmare and holy shit, but we don't look at her as like one of the first people, one of the brave front you know, front people who said like, this is disgusting. This is horrible. This is a nightmare. This is a betrayal. We must stop this. And, you know, I think um, I think that when we're looking at, you know, people who are pr- provocative, whether, you know, whatever they're saying, I think sometimes we really, ha- we as a society, we're really quick to say, well, I don't agree with whatever that is or whatever they're trying to say. And we sort of stop there without like looking deeper and drilling down into like, you know, what might actually be, um, causing that kind of like provocative statement. And like, I don't know if that's totally clear, but like, I think sometimes... You know, like I'm thinking about Colin Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick, who's like, you know, who's kneeling was so controversial on the football field that he couldn't even, you know, play for play, play in the NFL or whatever. And now you see like all major league sports right now. Everybody is kneeling and everybody is doing yeah. it. And those people are going to be applauded. Good for you. Good for you for recognizing it. But let's look back at these, um, you know, at these people who were brave enough to do it when they were the only one doing it
1: yeah oh I completely agree with you and then and which brings us then to the fifth song because it's called Black Boys on Mopeds and I mean this is like you, you listen to it here Peter play the chorus and then I want to talk about it P- play 115
0: England's not the land of Madame George Rose it's the home of police who kill black boys on mopeds I love my
1: boy, and that's why I'm leaving. That's so what you just said, it, it couldn't have segued perfectly into this. I know song what I'm because,
2: doing. It's not my
1: first rodeo. Yeah, dude, you're killing you, it, dude. I Uh, But this is a song about a 1989 incident in England where Nicholas Bramble, a black youth, was riding his moped when he got chased by the police who thought he'd stolen it. He ended up crashing and dying, but his death was ruled accidental, which caused many to accuse the police of racism. I mean, that is sadly still relevant today Mm -hmm. and and especially the line these are dangerous days to say what you feel is to dig your own grave
2: she's basically like a fucking prophet i mean this woman is like you know she's writing to us from this time where she's like hello everyone wake the fuck up and now here we are 30 years later still having these conversations
1: yeah Uh, what let me ask you do you feel like politics and music lift each other up
2: I've always found the conversation, this is not because of your question, I'm not trying to be like, no, I've always found the conversation around the idea of politics, identity, and music and how those things intersect to be so um, generally disappointing. Like the fact that we think that these things can be separated or that they can be, you know, whenever I hear like a pop star say like, I'm not a political person. And I just, I I just find it really frustrating. Like if you are, if you are conscious and living in this world and paying attention, I don't understand how your existence can't be couched in some kind of politic, except if you are, if you are in the majority and you are white and you are not suffering anything and you are not paying attention to the inequities or the things that you're profiting off of because of your, your, your whiteness or your maleness or your cisness or your whatever. And so I think like, you know, I think I think that not everyone should be out writing political music, but I think that the idea that um, when people say that they're not political, what I think that often means is that they don't want to participate or use their position of power to um, to, to speak to uh, the inequities or the marginalized or the issues of people who are suffering. And I think that is fucked up. <laughs> I'm not saying that. A, Adele has to put out or Taylor Swift or whoever that they have to put out like Rage Against the Machine records. I just don't think they have to, but it is important to use your position. I really think it is. It's crucial.
1: No, I agree. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's what's beautiful now, like you said about Colin Kaepernick is that now everybody is inspired and, and now they're using it. And, it. and it sucks to be that trailblazer sure. because you just get ostracized and and shit on and pushed aside. And and it's it's just like, it, it, it makes so much sense, I uh, dude. It's it's almost like this record couldn't have come on the list at a better time mm. for I think all of our listeners and me and probably you included to, to rehash this because mm-hmm. it's so important. Yeah. All right, we've come to the hit of all hits. Let's skip Nothing it. compares to you. <laughs> this this is so so like you said. This was written by Prince for uh, the family which was a band on his Paisley Park label created after the breakup of the time. And even though this is another cover, uh, I think this still imbues it with uh, the same heavy, conflicted feelings about her mother. And then, like we talked about, the emotional music video that stays so close on her face and then the single tear, uh, I think people immediately don't even think of Prince when they hear this. This is a Sinead O'Connor song. And in my opinion, this might be uh, one of the best moments of her entire uh, career from uh, this clip we're about to play. Peter, play it. So, you probably noticed this, uh, being that you're an artist, a musician. But in the first chorus, she doesn't do that that D minor, and in the second one, that D minor that she plays as she as as she's singing is so heartbreaking. And uh, the fact that they didn't do it on the first chorus just adds. So much gravity to what she's singing after those lines that we just played. Mm -hmm. I think this song is perfect. Mm -hmm. I think this is, when I hear it, it takes me right back to 1990 on the school bus. Um, And what's so great about it, it's much like Yesterday by the Beatles, where when people cover this, like, have you heard the Chris Cornell version of this? I haven't. Ah, oh, Sarah, you've got to listen, I will. To it. and ex- and especially with him being gone, yeah. it just adds so much weight. I think this is a perfect song. It's so iconic. Yeah, uh, what is it? What does it do to you?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a masterpiece. I would put it up there with um, "I Will Always Love You." Like I, I think, like I think these are these are like these are these are masterpieces. They, I mean, lyrically, melodically, and and while not every version is a masterpiece this 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 song can be sung by almost anyone it's kind of like um hallelujah
1: you know, yeah no no completely people, yeah. everyone
2: takes a shot at hallelujah and you're like even the bad versions you're like but it's a great song yeah. you know like it can't it can't be complete shit you know um but i was gonna say too about about this this song <laughs> i went to go see tornado connor um this year in vancouver she she came through and toured and you know the concert um was it had up and down moments i didn't think it was i didn't think it was like spectacular i have lots of thoughts about that that i would only share with um my my therapist and myself but i um (laughs) but i it was so fascinating when she sang this song it was like the whole room it was like the whole show just totally changed like every single person in the room was singing including me i cried oh i bet um and i just in that moment i just I I sort of feel, I mean, like, sort of to use a religious reference, I've never been a religious person. I don't have that feeling of like standing in a church and singing about this, you know, this, this idea or whatever. But in this moment, it felt it felt like, you know, like, um it, it just it didn't feel like a concert experience. It felt like something much more elevated than that. And I think you know something that you said. I think it just it it's transporting in this way that is just like not always the case with music that I loved when I was young. I listen to it and I'll think that sounds like crap or yeah, that's still pretty cool. Like this song is bulletproof. It is perfect every time you hear it. It doesn't matter where it is. You will never grow sick of it. It is just it is a masterpiece. Fully,
1: it, it is a masterpiece. Yeah. So I have two things I'm about to tell you that are going to change. Uh, not it's not going to take it down from the masterpiece. Kay. But it's definitely going to open, if you didn't know these, this is going to blow your mind. All right, so first thing, uh, Prince didn't like this version. I do know that. You, oh, you do? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Well, I
2: think, uh, I'm like Prince didn't like. I mean
1: waste your time. I feel like
2: Prince didn't <laughs> like anyone or anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, so yeah he, 100%. Like, yeah, he, unless they're basketball and pancakes, yeah. according to Dave Chappelle. Yeah. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. All right. And then this is the thing I don't know if you know this one. Uh, so, but even though this song sounds like it's about a lost lover, it's more than likely. That Prince wrote this song about his favorite housekeeper, Sandy, who had to leave him suddenly. Sandy used to do everything (laughs) for him, including wash all his socks and underwear, put out fresh flowers, and pour him his favorite beverage, Five Alive. Um, Thoughts on that? Because if you listen to the lyrics, read the lyrics, It it could be that. Could be
2: a lost lover, too. Sure. I mean, I think about Sandy. my, my thoughts on that is like, sure. I mean, we all get like, you know, Prince was from a different planet, you know, he really, Yeah. he, he, uh, my understanding reading about him and I've, I've known some people who've worked for, who worked for him. Um, he, he, I think when you're operating and vibrating on like this other level, it must just be exhausting to be around the rest of us. Like we are just moving in slow fucking motion. Like, I mean, yeah. It is – I'm not even making light of this. Like, I think it is – when you when you are that prodigious and, like, elevated and next level, I'm sure being around the rest of us is, like, being around, like, a bunch of fucking dogs licking their asses all day. Like, you're just like – Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, like, I sort of have always looked at Prince and things that he felt or, or said or did or whatever – as if like he was sort of this um, man trapped in another world, you know, like I just, even though like some of his behavior is just abhorrent and I hear stories of like him just being like such an asshole, <laughs> you know, like just, yeah. you know, whatever, like I'm like, but it just give him a pass because it must have just been exhausting for him, you know, to have to oh, deal God. with all of our shit. But like this, I don't care that he doesn't like this version. And in some weird way, I mean, just like armchair psychologist here, like him disapproving or rejecting Sinead O'Connor's version is like you know is, is sort of like the 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 mother or the or the God or the Church rejecting her and her you know like whatever like it just probably played into her sort of like martyrdom and her victimhood like here she had made this fucking masterpiece and the author of that song just kind of like nah it's not that great and then he recorded his own version right like then he was like yes he did but it's not it's not great
1: no this this one is like in full disclosure this one and the Chris Cornell one uh, carries so much weight for me. This one, of course, superseding it by like a million percent. Also, I just want to say, you talking about what Prince must feel being around us. I think it was the perfect uh explanation of what it's like to be a genius dealing with idiots. I mean, it's just 100%. He must have been so pissed off yeah. all the time, man. He d- oh my god. I always
2: hear these stories. I love the prince stories. I mean, even if they're like totally embellished, which actually I don't think they are. You know, I think I mean I I did know I I do know people who, who worked with him and I mean, he's sort of like the. Um, if did you watch? Did you watch The Watchmen on HBO?
1: Oh my God! Yeah. You know how? You
2: know how? Like, um, uh, is it Jeremy Irons? You know, he's like in that world where he has like the.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. The all the the people he keeps like uh, rebirthing. Yeah, or and he's just he's just like
2: ruthlessly, cruelly killing them all, and like trying to get out of the the where the world he's stuck in. I feel like that's Prince. <laughs> like,
1: I feel that's like, Prince with like Apollonia.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, no, no, okay, no. But like, there was a few people close to him that I think like probably were like he deemed like operating on this level. But like the rest of us, like we're just like ants. I think.
1: Yeah. You prince know. gets a pass prince gets a, prince f- gets a pass no pass. it's like yeah if you're that like listen i people always say don't meet your idols and you know i love tom york from radiohead but i do not want to meet him because if i do i could imagine he's gonna hate me right you know what i mean or just, just like be, beck did
2: or just <laughs> or just like normal like i think one of the things about meeting people is also just like it is exhausting i mean i've been around so many of these like sort of like gigantically famous people and it's like how exhausting to just have so many expectations and projections on you. And it's like, how do you live up to, or not under, you know, perform for someone and whatever. And it's like, sometimes it's probably you'd meet Tom York and he'd be like, he would just like, you know, he, he, maybe he wouldn't have anything interesting to say, you know, maybe he would just sure. be like having an off moment or something. You know, I don't know.
1: A hundred percent. But it's like, uh, but it's like Prince, Tom York, uh, Michael Jordan, they can be dicks if they want to, to people because they are they are the like the 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 top of whatever it is that they do. Nobody can do better. That's why I always get mad when you find out people with no talent are assholes sure. that are famous. And you're like, you don't des- you didn't do anything to deserve <laughs> that. You're an, an Instagram influencer. You can yeah you can leave
0: yeah.
1: Give <laughs> me some prints. Give me some prints. All right, jump in the river. Uh, so this is the first single from the record, released in 1988 on the soundtrack to the Jonathan Demme movie, Married to the Mob. Uh, likely due to its inclusion in the movie, there's a gunshot ricochet sound right at the top, which really breaks the mood from the last song. Uh, Peter, play the intro. All right, that's funny because it actually does sound like, uh, you know, like a montage song from an '80s movie. Yeah, it's you know it, I mean? to me. This is
2: the outlier song on the record where it just feels like it's like her, like it feels like a like different band, different era, like different, different, whole different thing.
1: Yeah, it's. It, I'm not listening, It doesn't flow with with the whole record, but um, it, it it is still a good song. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it could be the fact that it was co-written. Uh, with frequent collaborator Marco Pironi, who played in Susie and the Banshees and Adam and, Adam and the Ants. It also features Andy Rourke from the Smiths on bass and acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And the song is about her past relationship that's still around and her devotional willingness to take even bad advice from him. Um, I wanted to ask you this. What was the worst record industry advice or suggestion that you and your sister have received?
2: I mean, I can't, I I don't even know where to begin with that. That's like a whole, Please, that's just, a whole series just, podcast. That's seasons of a podcast series. Listen, um, we, can,
1: we, don't, we can do whatever we want now. We can go four hours if you want do to you know, nothing the rest of the day.
2: <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing about advice. I think, you know, where this is like, this is my very diplomatic answer. I think that, what has always worked for me and Tegan is listening to our own guts. You know, I think mm-hmm. um, we are, we are wise. We have 20 years of music industry experience. We didn't always, and it was really important for us to hear people out. You know, to ha- we had, um, we certainly had people in the music industry who were somewhat mentor-ish to us, like Neil Young's manager, Elliot Roberts, who was, the first person to give us a record deal, and you know, was you know, was somebody who would pick up the phone anytime we would call, whether we were you know twenty or even as recently as you know in our in our mid thirties when we just wanted to chat about industry things or, or trends or whatever. Um, having those kinds of people in our life was really important. It was the advice or the things that they said to us always, right? No. But I think being able to be willing to hear people out and then to also have enough strength and confidence in your own sort of like North star that, um, that you don't get sort of pulled it, pushed and pulled into many different directions. And I, there were, there have definitely been moments where people have said things to us that we just like leave the room and go like, Holy shit. Like, can you imagine if we've
1: <laughs> No, completely. But, uh, what's, what's the, what was the one that you were like, holy shit these people are disconnected to who we are
2: i mean like i said there's been so many i mean there's little they're, they're, they're just like a, a trillion minor little tiny moments like i always laugh about marketing people because they just they are just trained they are born to tell you every idea they have even bad ones because that's like the whole mission is like give me all your ideas even your bad ones but we have heard some pretty bad ones but um, my favorite that we still dra- laugh about to this day, Walking with a Ghost, which was our first really like successful single in the United States. I remember sitting down with the marketing team and there was this idea of like, you always have to sort of like, not bribe, but you have to like send like promotional materials to radio companies because I guess that'll like make it th- stick in their mind. Like, oh, this song and I got this thing. And they wanted us to make um, Marshmallow Ghosts to send out with the um, with the single. And I just was like, this was like during a time where I was making about $21,000 a year, I was like touring 270 days in a van with my sister and a bunch of stinky guys and like, barely, you know, eating out of gas station, you know, racks or whatever. And I was like, the music industry is so stupid. <laughs> just like, yeah. You're going to spend thousands of dollars making marshmallow ghosts out of plastic, like, and sending them to people. And that's going to get my single played. Like, I just remember being like, I'm dealing with idiots. Maybe I'm Prince. I don't know. I just felt like, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I just, but there's been a million, a million terrible ideas, a million terrible offensive moments. But what I think really comes down to is like, if you have, if you, if you've got that, if you have that idea in your mind of who you are and where you want to go and you stay focused on that, I think that always sort of trumps any stupid
1: idea. Oh, completely! But you know, what's funny when you were talking about uh, uh, traveling around with a bunch of stinky guys in a van. I would pay anything to do that right now. Oh god! Just not me. to get out of my <laughs> fucking house. Yeah. <laughs> um. I, you listen, and I think you know it. When you when you know, like what you want in your art, and and who you are, and and you know how to express that. Anytime somebody comes with an idea, I argue all the time with my producers of this, with either the producers of my television show, whatever it is, because it's like, you know, it's like, you know what you are and you know what you want to do. And you can see the clear path to success. And so sometimes, you know, marshmallow ghost is maybe that would
2: have been maybe that would have been it. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we could have had more success. It Might have been a crossover if we just if some radio people had some marshmallows.
1: My my TV show, uh, it, it was the show that I created was called the Goddamn Comedy Jam, and one of the execs at Comedy Central said, "Well, we can't say Goddamn, so how about we call it the Hot Damn Comedy Jam?" And I was like, "Get the fuck out of here!"
2: It's the Hot Damn Comedy Jam. Right. Do you know it? Reinforce sometimes bad ideas also reinforce what you believe about your idea, and I think that's that's important. You know, I mean, Elliot again, Elliot Roberts, Neil Young's manager. I remember when we delivered our second album to Vapor Records, which was the label that he and Neil had, um, I know I remember they didn't like it. You know, I mean, he didn't like it. And I remember him saying, like, you know, I just really see your guys' uh, future more rooted in acoustic music and folk music. And, you know, like, let people hear your voices. And, you know, don't be afraid of whatever it is that you're afraid of, this stigma of folk music. And we were just like, fuck that. Like, we want to play rock music. And we want to, you know, we want to do this thing. And Um, you know, later on, I mean, again, another, another sure sign that someone is truly wise is he, I remember him coming to us after another album or two and just saying like, you guys made the right path. You guys forged your own path. You guys didn't, you didn't follow in the footsteps of like what people like us would have potentially thought for you generationally. You, You forged your own path. You saw indie rock and the way that it was evolving and the way that it was eventually going to intersect with pop music. And 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 there was a lot of like um there was an, there was an acknowledgement of the fact that by not listening to him, we had done something important for ourselves. and I think you know, like if he hadn't said that to us and we hadn't had to sort of like come up with that resolve of like, no, this is the right path for for our band um I don't know maybe we would have ended up doing something different, I don't know,
1: yeah. Completely. All right. Not to skip over uh, you cause as much sorrow, but I wanted to get uh, the final song. I really want to talk about is the last day of our acquaintance. Favorite song on Uh, the record. Is it? Yeah. Oh, thank God, because I am I was always worried that I skip over ones that you might love. No. Um, funny that you say that because, I mean, and I have to leave Nothing Compares to You off of when I talk about my favorite song on it because that's so big and you have to appreciate sure. the other ones. This definitely probably is one of my favorites. Also, I think it's just because it starts off so timidly with her acoustic, but then like three and a half minutes in, it's just like you can hear yeah. the bitterness, yeah. like crest, <laughs> and the guitars start hitting so hard, and then the drums come in. Uh, Peter, play 304 when the drums kick in.
0: Told, but you won't listen to me. I know your answer already.
1: good that that ho 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 oh my god it's it's Like, like
2: that song to me is a punk song it is yes it is it's like it's using that kind of like um the power of like you said it's the it's the absence of all of those like the heavier guitars it's the absence of her you know the the anger in her voice the absence of drums but she knows when she's using it that it just it's like it's like it's like um you know, pins and needles, it's
1: electricity, it's exciting, it's powerful. Yeah. So this addresses her divorce with John Reynolds, uh, but in a much more clinical and detached way, as if it's between the lawyers she sings about. Uh, The funny thing is, uh, the drums on the record were played by John Reynolds, and you can feel like when it kicks in and she starts singing like that and doing those ho-ho-hos, that's like a real like you can feel that fuck you to him. Do you know what I mean? Like she is just laying it out there. Um so I wanted to ask you this. Have you ever sung uh an angry song about someone with them in the audience?
2: Yeah, I think I think I've I've definitely performed for people I've written music about and I've certainly I've certainly had the experience of performing when things aren't great for that person. And then also sort of like where there's almost like you fully detached from the fact that the song was written about that person and they're there. Like, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing that's so beautiful about music is that it can, you know, just like for, just like for the listener, just like for fans, you know, when you heard this album, you might've been thinking about a relationship you were having in the nineties. And now you're like, you know it's 30 years and you might be able to apply this music to your life experience or your situation now. I feel the sure. same way as a writer. Like I, you know, when I wrote Walking with a Ghost for example, um, you know, I was I was 20 like 3 years old and I was just moving to Montreal and I was a young person and I'd just gone through a breakup and I'd had a had a really big crush on a girl I barely knew and she was the ghost in my mind that I was, you know, traveling around the city with and thinking about and pining yeah. for and like that you know, I don't think about that story anymore when I sing that song. I don't think about that, the the origin of that. That energy is no longer in the song for me. It's not rooted in the song for me.
1: Yeah. Wow. I love it. All right. Uh, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right. These are the last facts in the <laughs> podcast. Facts, facts, facts. All right. <laughs> Even though she was nominated for four Grammys for this album and won one for "Nothing Compares to You," Sinead refused to accept the nominations or the award in protest to the materialism of the music industry. Kind of reminds me of what like Fiona did when she mm-hmm. won the, the uh I think MTV. it was uh, the MTV award. Yeah, where she was yeah. like, "This is bullshit. It's fake. Yeah. Don't, don't care about us." Um, so I wanted to ask you because you and Tegan have also stood up, uh, for your beliefs and for those without a voice. I want you to tell uh, my, my listeners about the Tegan and Sarah foundation and how, uh, my fans, the fleece army can get involved and help.
2: Sure yeah i mean so obviously Tegan and I are are gay and we are we are happily and and proudly political and gay at the same time <laughs> and we have always looked for ways to um you know use our use our position and our and our um you know our uh connections and our relationships within the music industry and also our audience to um uh, to raise money and redistribute that money back into the community that we're from so specifically we focus on um, self-identified women and girls within the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so we're talking about like, you know, uh, local organizations, grassroots, social justice type organizations who um, generally work in the areas of leadership, mentorship, healthcare, education. Um, this can look like uh, you know, micro grants for organizations that um, pay for bus passes for uh, LGBTQ folks living in rural communities who want to have access to um, a social worker or a therapist. This might be, um, you know, grants that allow summer camps who who center and focus LGBTQ um, staff and, and uh, campers. Um, this might be uh, like for example, we did a big hackathon at the Broad Institute, which is part of MIT in Boston, where we looked at healthcare data um, that is collected in the United States at hospitals that identifies um, uh, sexuality and looked at what are some of the trends or what are some of the pros and cons of having that data on um, on the queer community. So we work across a, like a broad spectrum of areas, um, and primarily the the money that we raise is. Uh, is collected from um, a a sort of promise and pact we made um, publicly that we would donate a dollar from every concert ticket we ever sell goes back to the foundation. And we've been able to raise close to a million dollars just through initiatives like that, through auctioning off guitars, through um, generosity from our record label. We've had a few music projects that they've let us use all of the um, profits for. um, And the money gets redistributed back into um, into these communities of need
1: that's so great you know you, you forget that because you know living in los angeles or or new york or like dc the the three places i've lived and you know you see the gay community there and they have like west hollywood and dupont circle it's like you almost mm-hmm. sometimes forget that there are there are you know uh gays and lesbians and and non-binary mm-hmm. whatever in all parts of the country where they're they might feel like the only homosexual and it's mm-hmm. like just to feel that connection, it's like the feel that their community is there is so important.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also, too, like it's really important to understand that being gay is not necessarily, you know, the the primary issue. Like when we're looking at the queer community and the LGBTQ community broadly, we're talking about people who have a, you know, who have a number of different identities. So like, you know, we might be talking about people who are black or people of color or people with disability or people with Um, you know, um, with financial struggles, you know, like the reality is, is that we're not just trying to like, uh, raise awareness and be like, gay people are great. Like we're talking about the real life inequities and discriminatory practices and the, um, you know, the lack of legal protections. We're talking about people who are sort of facing a myriad of issues that, um, you know, make their lives uh, difficult or dangerous. And um, while I totally appreciate the, um, you know, the historical uh, public well-known legacies of the of the gay rights movement things like marriage equality i mean there are just there are just a there are just like an endless number of things that our community struggles with especially when we look at the intersectionality of of our queer community identities
1: yeah all right well help any fleece army help any way you can
2: yeah yeah there's lots it's actually i was going to say we're going to be announcing a really fun campaign coming up um in the next week or two we are uh our our album so jealous which is almost twenty years old now, which has a song like wow. so it has Walking with a Ghost on it. We are auctioning off the guitars that we made that with that we used to make that album, that we toured that album with. Um, and it's gonna be a really easy buy and you can buy like a you can buy a ticket for ten dollars and get put into an uh to to a big draw and um and we're going to be giving those guitars away in September on our fortieth birthday. So I'm really excited about that.
1: Oh, that is so great! That is so great! What a great way to celebrate your fortieth birthday too. <laughs> and then also when you say the album's twenty years old, you're like, huh? You get that like pit in your stomach, like it's oh shocking. It's
0: it's,
2: it's <laughs> it won't be. It's twenty. It'll be twenty in two thousand. Uh, uh, two thousand twenty-four. But we're like coming up close enough. By
1: close the time enough. we get out of the quarantine. Yeah, it'll it'll be perfect, perfect, (laughs) perfect, 2024. All right. Uh, In March 2015, uh, Sinead announced that she wouldn't sing Nothing Compares to You Anymore as she'd run out of emotional inspiration to do it justice live. But in September of 2019, she sang a stunning version of it live on an Irish late show while wearing uh, her hijab. Uh, The clip became a viral sensation and she was offered her own show uh wow, it's like how lucky were you to be able to see that and not to It's almost like seeing and like we brought up radio it earlier but like the way that like they won't sing creep anymore.
2: Yeah. It's like
1: you can imagine I me. Mean, do you have songs like that that you guys are kind of just you're like oh Jesus. Like
2: No, we're sellouts. We'll do whatever our audience wants. We <laughs> yeah. we barely have any rules for, you know. I I'm kidding, but like <laughs> there's nothing that I I mean there's been times where I haven't wanted to sing certain songs you get you get sick of stuff you know or you don't want to sing it the way that everyone expects you to sing it i mean there's i mean there's like totally moments like that in our in our career like i i pretty much have stopped playing guitar for the last 10 years because i was tired of i was tired there that's it that's the reason it was exhausting to carry it i weigh about 105 pounds the guitar's heavy my shoulder was fucked up i was always at the chiropractor i wanted to just focus on singing and it was unbelievable how annoying that was to people. People were sure. like, "I mean, we still get messages to this day. We just did a tour where I played guitar, played piano, every song. It was just me and Tegan on stage. And I saw a comment the other day um, where this guy was like, you know, I hope you guys consider playing instruments moving forward. Every show I've seen since whatever, the con, you don't play any instruments. And I was like, get fucked. I played every what. – first of all, I am an instrument. Yeah. I, I don't have to play a guitar if I don't want to. But I think there's those, those moments where you're contrarian and you think like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to play songs the way I want to play them. And so I respect – Sinead for not playing her biggest hit. I don't really, I don't care. But I will say, as someone in the audience, I would have felt really sad. Yeah, if yeah, she didn't yeah. It. but she played all of my other favorite songs, so I could have walked away feeling like respect. But she did it, and I, it was, it was, tra- it was like a transformative moment.
1: That was the icing, away. man. That was the icing yeah, on the cake to great. make it the spiritual experience. Yeah. Um, also, also, fuck that, dude. Uh, if we've learned anything today, be Prince. Be yeah, Prince. You deserve it.
2: I try not to I try not to engage because I uh, I know that people are just you know it's just the world we live in now everybody's got a fucking opinion
1: everybody's got a voice yeah, yeah. fucking social media it's all started <laughs> with Tom from MySpace and now here we are fuck you Tom fuck you Tom all right uh but you know what's funny Tom right now if he heard us say that I'd be like cool you know I sold uh, MySpace for like two billion dollars <laughs> so I'm Prince all right last fact all right uh so after all the love following this album, Sinead forced a spectacular backlash in the U.S. after refusing to let the national anthem be played before her concert in New Jersey and then protesting, like we talked about, the Catholic Church abuse uh, through scandals by surprisingly tearing up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live during an acapella version of Bob Marley's song, War. Yeah, I forgot that she was singing War. And she was banned from SNL for life and her career never really recovered because of that. So I wanted to ask you, what was your most controversial moment?
2: I mean, again, I just, I mean, we've certainly, we certainly have held our own and spoken out. And I know that we have faced, you know, um, I don't want to say a backlash. I don't think we ever have had a backlash, but I think that we have certainly, uh, we have certainly taken positions that we knew would have impacts on our, on our career or on the, you know, on the way that we were treated by certain institutions. Like for example, speaking out about, um, you know, the mu- the sexism and misogyny in the music industry, speaking out about some of our award shows and our, and our grants and funding here in Canada and how, you know, whether, whether intentional or not are often extremely, um, extremely biased and, and, um, and, you know, and certainly like our, our technical and, um, you know, production roles, like those types of things, like they're, they're always men every time the award season comes up, I'm like, oh good, five more white guys are going to get nominated for this award or whatever. And we've like spoken out about that. And I know everybody in the music industry knows these things or can understand these things, but I know that because we were part of a movement that addressed them, that that changes the way people feel about you and the way that they think about you and the way that they um, consider you when you're being, when you're up for certain things. And, um, and I think we've just made peace with that. You know, when we've had a lot of public conversation about the fact that music festivals are are always white guys and it's, you know, those, the, the the people who book those festivals are still in power. So when you speak out about that, I don't think they're rushing to put you on the show, you know, and I think, but we've made peace with it because it's been more important for us to you know, to speak our mind about what we see happening, and and I just think like if we if, if somebody puts an obstacle in front of us, we just find another way to get to where we want to go. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't feel like we've ever really experienced um, experienced the kind of backlash that someone like Sinead O'Connor has has faced.
1: No, I get it, uh, Sarah. This was. Fantastic, and you know what's sad? This happens to me a lot, but I'm feeling it a lot on this record. Is that is that I have to move on now from this album? And it's like I really just started to like absorb it and really understand it. But this couldn't have been a better way to to put this record to bed and move on uh, because this conversation was so fantastic.
2: I love that you're doing this, and I want, and I also like. I'm sure you already did all of this, but like one of the things that I, I do love about the internet is that you beyond this album, there are so many absolutely astonishing live videos on the internet of Sinead O'Connor during this era. I mean, I have sat with friends and watched these perform the her perform these songs at the height of this album and, you know, and her sort of fame in the nineties, and they are revolutionary. I mean, they're incredible to watch. And if people haven't seen that stuff, my God, I completely I beg you, I beg you to look for them on the internet. They're incredible.
1: I watched the the one that we had wrote about the, the 2019 performance of her singing, singing Nothing Compares to You. Mm-hmm. You need to watch Chris Cornell singing it. I think you'll love it. I will. Um, um, but also, is there anything that you want to promote
2: just We're here. We're still alive. So I hope everyone remembers when this is all over.
1: <laughs> uh, just in case the internet was, remember when they said they were trending and they were dead. We, didn't, still die. we they did didn't die. We
2: did not die. We're not, we, we're old, but we're not dead. So I uh, hope hopefully, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm thrilled. I I would love if people checked out the Tegan and Sarah foundation and, uh, and could participate in our, in our upcoming uh, fundraising attempts, because as you know, touring has been canceled and that is where we do the vast majority of our fundraising for the foundation. And so um, unfortunately, we will be losing um, a great deal of our funding um, this year. And so we're trying to come up with some other uh, fun ways to um, pick your pocket. So yeah, check that out. That would be amazing.
1: Go to the Tegan Sarah Foundation, pay the $10, get in the raffle for the guitar. I bet you, you know, and if you don't get the guitar, maybe you'll get a pick. Maybe yeah. <laughs> you'll get a guitar strap. But Sarah, this was just fantastic. I mean it.
2: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. What did I tell you? What did I tell
1: you guys? The one and only Sarah Quinn. Get their brand new record from Tegan and Sarah. Hey, we're just like you. The remixes, like I said, it came out last Friday. Also check out their brand new video. I know I'm not the only one as part of a 25 minute special on their YouTube channel. And like we talked about in the podcast, take a deep dive into the Tegan and Sarah foundation and see how you can help fight for health, economic justice, and representations for LGBTQ girls and women Do whatever you can to help and support the Tegan and Sarah Foundation. I I love that they do this. And if you guys want to find Tegan and Sarah Gardening at Home on IGTV, they are at at Tegan and Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. And their website is TeganandSarah.com. Now, we just listened to Sinead O'Connor from 1990. This week, our new music pick by, oh, My special friend, Matt Penfield, is Phoebe Bridgers. You're listening to her epic new song, I Know the End. It's a track that's perfect for these pandemic end times. Phoebe is an American singer-songwriter from L.A., and she's released two albums under her name, including The Fantastic Punisher, which came out in June. Phoebe cites Sinead as a major influence on her music and covered black boys on mopeds just last week on KEXP. And you can find links to that cover as well as her other music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you like the song that you're playing and want that to be your song from your band, send us your song, if you're influenced. Send it to 500podcasts at gmail.com and make sure you put the album and artists that influence you in the subject line, I want to play your music on my podcast, Help Me Help You. Next week is The Clash Week as we go deep into their 1980 album Sandinista Ooh, it's a goodie It's Dougal up the kushlugal You got some homework to do Listen to the records Stay fleecy A
0: Dougal kuddu When the sirens sound, you'll hide under the floor, but I'm not gonna go down, with my hometown in a tornado, I'm gonna chase it, I know, I know, I know, I gotta go now, I know. Cream. Yes, sir.